Good morning. So this morning, we are in Deuteronomy 3 as we've been walking through this book. We've been there for several weeks now, and I want to greet you all. I hope that you brought your Bibles. Uh, if you're at home today, I hope that you got your Bibles down off the shelf or wherever you keep them. And we are open to three. We went through half of three last time, but today we're going to finish that off and get into that, I'll maybe even into chapter 4 a little bit. Um, the Word of God is a precious, precious thing, and it's what defines us as a people of God. It's what focuses our attention on the one that we worship, uh, which seems like a strange thing to say. I mean, everybody knows that Christians worship God and so forth, but as you're going to see today uh, as we walk through here, this is a privilege that we have to know so well so well defined uh, what's expected of us, uh, who our God is, uh, what we have to do, what we should be doing to fulfill his ethics, to get forgiveness of sins, and so forth. This was not known at the time when this book was written. Uh, the people of Canaan had no idea who their God was. They just assumed there was a God. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. But right now I'm going to jump into the reading of uh, Deuteronomy 3, beginning at verse uh, 12. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Error, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of the Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Uh, all that portion of Bashan is called the land of the Rephaim. Jair the Massonite took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Gersherites and the Mechites, and called the villages after his own name, the Havoth Jair, as it is to this day. To Maker I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley of the border as far over as the river Jabbok. The border of the Ammonites, the Arabah, also with the Jordan as the border from Chinnereth as far as the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives your little ones, your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to those two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing you shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Now, if you were at home and you had to do a time in the Word and you were reading through this, you would be glad you got through this section and you would close it and say, wow, I should get a merit badge for reading all those proper nouns. You know, what in the world is going on here? Well, actually, this is an incredibly important part of Scripture. And you said, well, of course you're saying that because you're the preacher. But no, it's true. It is something that is uh, really amazing and it is happening here in these few short words. Uh, what we're looking at here is God's blessing. God's blessing. And the way I see it and understand it is that God's blessing requires obedience. Uh, 
we all want God's blessing. We look for it. We pray for it. Um, there are things that we're specifically asking for. Uh, we'd like to see God's blessings happen uh, maybe when we're sick. God, please heal me. I need your blessing of healing. When we're having trouble in a marriage, Lord, heal our marriage. Uh, may we come together like we once were. Maybe we have children that are uh, choosing not to walk with the Lord, and we just say, oh, Lord, if my kids could walk with you, what a blessing. Uh, bless this church, you know. Uh, bless the people that are live in my neighborhood. May they hear the word of the Lord. May they understand the gospel. Whatever it is, we look for God's blessing. And too often, we don't understand the relationship of blessing with obedience. They go together. And Moses is telling that right now in these really kind of strangely written verses, that's exactly what's happening. Now, Moses uses two, uh, shall we say, liter uh, literary devices to kind of walk us through this. The first one is that he uses the phrase, at that time, about six times in this chapter. Uh, at that time, it's a historical marker, it kind of puts us where we need to be, but when Moses is writing this book in his tent somewhere, um, he is saying, at that time, in other words, remember, this happened, at that time, you were charged with this, at that time, you agreed to this. So as you read through this, that's one thing that should stand out to you, just go ahead and underline that everywhere in your Bible, and you'll get to be able to follow along pretty easily. The other thing that's going on here is that he is using a structure, uh, it's called a chiastic structure, which you often do in poetry. Words that rhyme and so forth, you might go A, B, A, B. Well, here it's A, B, C, B, A. And basically what's happening is there's the allotment of land to the tribes of Reuben and Gad in verse 12, the allotments of land to the half-tribe of Manasseh in verse 13a, so that's A, B, and then there is a parenthetical, sort of a historical footnote in here that Moses feels is important for them to understand, which is saying basically, if you remember, we chased the giants out of the land in 13b and 14. So that's A, B, and C comes back to B again, the allotment again to the tribe of Manasseh, and then he wraps it up in verses 16 and 17 by mentioning once more that Reuben and Gad get their land. And the reason they did this was because people needed to understand a couple of things. One, that this isn't just Moses' writing. These little markers kind of give us a clue into insight into how God puts his word together so that we can have understanding of it. But also, people gave these uh, stories an oral tradition. Um, there weren't a lot of people that had writing materials. Uh, there wasn't just easy to go to a library and pick a book off a shelf and say, I want to read what God said back a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. No, there were people in most tribes, most areas that had the ability to memorize vast amounts of scripture. And these little chiastic structures really helped. Oh yeah, that was the ABCBA uh, part. So it kind of shows the unity and internal unity to the word but it also helps us keep fresh in our mind what is going on here. Now, this starts off by talking about two tribes, Reuben and Gad. And if you remember, the tribes are merely the 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, in the stories of Scripture from Genesis, uh, Jacob was the dreamer, the schemer. <clears throat> 
He was the twin brother of Esau. We talked about that last week, the Edomites. Um, but Jacob had 12 sons, and he had, remember, fallen in love with a young lady by the name of Rachel, and he had worked so hard for her to become his wife. He made a bargain with his uncle, saying, man, if I work for you for seven years, can I have this young woman? And the agreement was reached, not uncommon in this culture. And so uh, Jacob went and did some honest labor. But unfortunately, on his wedding day, instead of getting Rachel, he got her, her sister, Leah. And then he got Rachel in addition. Laban must have not have thought that Leah was a good bargain because he threw her in. It was a twofer. And, you know, Jacob was like, well, why not? So he had those two wives, plus each of them would later uh, bring their handmaiden, sometimes referenced as a concubine, into the family relationship. So before you knew it, Jacob had this huge family, at least 12 sons, a daughter, and so forth. Um, and they were not really nice people, traveling around out in the wilderness, uh, trying to get to where they were going and so forth. But as they did so, if you read the stories that are recounted in the Bible, uh, as one of my professors said, these are really Jacob and the 12 thugs. Uh, they would go into places and they would take what they wanted. They would sometimes hurt others. Uh, they weren't necessarily a godly family. In fact, if this family went to our church, we would feel that Jacob and his wife were somewhat, uh, or wives, uh, losers as parents because their kids were everywhere. They were destroying things. They were causing all kinds of uh, heartache and problems. Nevertheless, in God's grace, they were part of the covenant that the Lord had made between himself and Abraham and his descendants. And Jacob comes along with his sons. And so what God says is when you get to the promised land, after their 400 years of uh, slavery in Egypt, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he says each uh, tribe, each one of your 12 sons, is going to get a parcel of land in the new land. It's going to be a section reserved just for them. So here we are, Deuteronomy chapter 3, ready, sitting at the Jordan River, or close to it, and they were ready to cross it. And God and Moses get together, and they listen to a request from two of the tribes, Reuben Gad, and almost forever from this point on in Scripture, you're going to see those two tribes linked together. Reuben is the eldest son of Jacob, um, a man that should have been of prominence. He should have been the receiver of the birthright, according to Near Eastern culture. He should have been the one that uh, had the blessing. But things went horribly wrong for him. If we look in, uh, oh, I'm not going to read it, but First Chronicles chapter 5, uh, we're given a little insight into what's going on here. Reuben, as the eldest, it says that he went in to his father's wife, uh, Bilhah, who was one of those uh, handmaidens for Leah. Uh, he went, or excuse me, for Rachel. He went it to her, and he had a sexual relation. Now, this wasn't uncommon when an older child is seeking to establish himself as the new head of a family. But you usually wait until the dad is dead, Right? You get all of his possessions in the birthright. You get his land. You get any family members that identify with him. You get the money, if there is any, and so forth. But Reuben rushed it. 
Reuben decided that he was dissatisfied with the way Jacob was running things and probably was counting on the fact that his dad was too old and infirm to do much about it. So he went and took this woman. And the Bible says because of that, he lost his birthright. So as you look at these 12 tribes and they're getting ready to go over and and Moses is going to go into some extreme detail as to the situation Um, what we're going to see is that it doesn't add up to his 12 sons. And the reason is because one of the sons, uh, Levi, gives up his right to land because the Levites, of course, are kind of like the pastors of the tribes. And instead of getting their own parcel of land, each tribe has to set aside land for a Levite, right, and their families. And so as they do that, they don't get their own Levitical tribe or land, excuse me. And secondly, Joseph, the second to youngest son in the family, uh, he's not getting his own section of land because his sons do. If you remember at the end of Genesis, uh, Joseph, who is the prime minister of Egypt at this point and has been you know, sold into slavery by his brothers, they hated him, uh, he brings his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, into his father to be blessed. And there's the whole hand-crossing scene, right? Well, they get their own sections of land. So if you look at the back of your Bible and you just find that map that says this is the lands or the tribes of the conquest, you're going to see that Manasseh is huge, son of Joseph, huge piece of land. They have land both on the east side, the Transjordan side of the River Jordan, and they have land on the west. Um, So what we're trying to do here is who gets what land, where they're going, and so forth. Well, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh come to Moses and say, guess what? We don't want to take land in the new land. We really like it here. And basically what they're saying is, this land looks good for livestock. And Moses, I love that little parenthetical thought he has in there. Uh, And yes, you have a lot of livestock. Anybody needs to know that. So they have livestock, and he says, yes, so this land would be good for that. And at first, Moses is convinced that they're trying to rebel and not do their duty of going across the river with the rest of the tribes and conquering the Canaanite people. But the truth is, they are just trying to establish where they're going to be. Reuben Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh under Maker, that's their leading man at the time, And they're going to stay on this side of the river. And Moses says, this is good. This is okay. Remember, God's blessings come because of obedience. And Moses says to them, if you want this, then here's what you have to do. Uh, And this is really spelled out in the book of Numbers when this is told in a much fuller way. But he says, I want you to cross in front of all of your brothers, in front of all the other armies. You're going to be the vanguard of this invasion and I want you to do this. They do it. They say, yeah, we'll take this on. And he says, secondly, you have to serve in this army for two and a half years, two and a half years. And only then can you return back to this land. But I don't want you to think about leaving before that. You're going to take your your wives, your children, and their livestock. They can stay here. But once we cross that river for two and a half years, you're going to be in the vanguard of this army. Now, this is jumping way ahead of where we are today. But if we go ahead to Joshua chapter 5, during this conquest, 
It's a fascinating story. And again, you talk about obedience. This is what's required of them. Not only does Moses say, yes, it's okay to do this, and then you fulfill these conditions, but it says later, after Moses is off the scene, Joshua is the new leader of Israel, they've crossed the land, uh, it says that they get over there, and this is a kicker. <laughs> they get over there, and all the, the men are lined up. They're about ready to take on the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and any other sites that get in their way, and they're going to wipe them out, right? And, and Joshua says, oh, God just talked to me. And as your new leader, and I thought about this, I was like, well, how would you like to be the new pastor of a group of people? and have to tell them this. It, it kind of made me think like you're, it's Christmas time and you're going to run down the stairs and open your Christmas gifts when you were a kid and you get all the way to the bottom of the stairs and you can see the glow of the Christmas tree and then that uncle steps in front of you and says, now there are a few rules before you get there. And you're like, wow, rules? What rules? You know, uh, But that's what Joshua has to do. And he says, here's a couple things that are going to happen. One, all of you need circumcised. And I'm sure the men were like, what? Are you kidding me? You know, we, Moses just said that we had to be in front of the armies. He didn't say anything. No, Joshua says, God says this, because your parents were circumcised in Egypt, they all died in the desert. And you were born in that desert, but that was never taken care of. And that has always been a symbol of identity for God's covenant people. That's just the way it is. And you have to do that. So what do they do? They put up tents. They, they put the men in line. And they walk through there. And they're circumcised, right? And it says that they take the amount of time uh, that they needed to do that um, to get them all through this process. I'm sure it couldn't have been easy. You know, normally, this is something done at eight days old for a baby. But I have to admire these men that they were willing to do that. That was the zeal of their obedience to what God was saying to enjoy his blessing. Um, so it says in verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And it doesn't tell us how long that might have taken. Uh, and then God says to Joshua, today, because of your obedience, today, because you were circumcised, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now, what's the reproach of Egypt? The sin that they have participated in Egypt. Not necessarily worshiping Egyptian gods, <clears throat> but the fact is that when they got into the desert, their families, their, their parents, had desired to go back to Egypt. They loved that life of slavery living in that captivity more than they enjoyed their presence with God. But God says, because you were willing to do what I asked you to do, the reproach of Egypt is rolled off of you, and the name of this place is called Gilgal to this day. So that was one step of obedience for these tribes. The second step of obedience that they do is that they have circumcision, right? They have to be, uh, excuse me, is Passover, they have to be, take over Passover. It says, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, of unleavened cakes and parched grain. So they're remembering. Passover began during the plagues of Egypt, 
It was the mark of blood on the lentils of the door so that the angel of death did not kill the firstborn son of anyone in Israel, just of the Egyptians. It was the most powerful of all of God's signs that he was with them and against the Egyptians. And so they left. And then annually, every year, the Israelites were expected to celebrate the Passover, just as a way of saying, we remember. So they've taken the covenant sign of circumcision upon themselves in obedience. They've participated in Passover together as a people in obedience. And this is, this is part that I really love. After they were done this in verse 12, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So obedience, obedience, and then the way that God had taken care of them for all 40 years in the wilderness was every morning they would go out and collect this manna off the ground. It came up like the dew on the grass. This is what fed them. This was sort of their bread stuff. It's, it's what filled their bellies. And they had eaten that every day for 40 years. They couldn't keep it overnight. It would go bad. It would, they tried that, you know, of course. They, they pushed the edge of the envelope all the time in their obedience. But at this point, this generation had been raised on that. They hadn't eaten anything but that for all this time. And now that they're in the promised land, now that they've gone through circumcision, now that they've taken Passover, God says it's going to be a new way. No more manna. It's done. From this point on, I want you to eat of this land that I'm giving to you. God's blessings are always linked with our obedience. Uh, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, I, I have, I've never really felt God's blessing. I don't know what you're talking about in that regard. And I, my question back at you is, oh, what, what's your obedience like? How has God challenged you to live? Are you keeping his statutes and rules, which is a big thing that Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy 3, if we go back to that section. So not only is he giving these tribes their allotment of land, but as we put the full story together with the rest of the scriptures in Numbers and Chronicles and Joshua, we realize that Moses' sermon here in this section is just a summary of blessing and obedience. Blessing and obedience. Oh man, that, that's, that's amazing. He's, his people will, every time they read these words, remember what they did. Uh, unfortunately, we know from the history of Israel, they didn't read them enough. And then he says, as this part kind of comes to a conclusion, that when that two and a half years is over, when the men of valor have crossed over and have gone to war and they've done all that they're supposed to do, he says, then you can go home. And he said in verse 20, the Lord gives rest to your brothers, right? Uh, as to you. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a special word. Rest is used quite often in the book of Deuteronomy, signifying that it's from God. It doesn't just mean that you can go home and go to bed or that, boy, you must be really tired once you take a nap. What it's talking about is rest as in Sabbath rest, as what we see when God created this world on the seventh day, the Lord rested, right? So what's this rest result from? Elimination of all outside threats. He didn't want them to really rest until all these tribes that they were supposed to defeat were defeated, right? It also means that they possessed the grant of land 
as their resting place. I don't know if you think about this very much. I can't imagine, you know, saying, all right, so I'm of the tribe of Issachar. And Issachar, this is your land. Moses said you get it from this river to this river, from this set of mountains to this place, and all that's yours. You know, I talked about coming downstairs for Christmas. Can you imagine that? Wow. You mean I just can move in here? I can just take it? Yeah. One, there's no one left in there, right? We talked about devoted to destruction last week. But two, there's, there probably were fortified cities. There were crops that had been planted. There were land that had been tilled. It was a special, special thing. If you were in part of the tribe of Ephraim, this is yours. You get all of this. Wow. Now, when you get to the book of Joshua, you'll see there were unique and special challenges for some of these conquests. Uh, you know, one of our favorite people, Caleb, he was the one that said, hmm, there are still some giants left in this section of land. Well, give me the privilege of getting to go there with my men, and we'll run them out of there, right? We'll take care of them. It's obedience, because we want God's blessing, and they got it. Now, you'll have to forgive Moses. He's so excited about this land. You know, as he's writing this, his people are hearing these words so differently than we're reading them today. They're just probably being prompted to think, oh my goodness, do you remember that? What it was like to see this land of milk and honey for the first time? This is incredible. And so we have to forgive Moses a little bit because this land for him was something that was very special. Archaeologists and climatologists tell us today that the land in the uh, late Bronze Age and early Iron Age was very different than it is today. Uh, it, today, because of the over-agriculturalizing, uh, if we can use that word, of the land, uh, it denuded the, the farmland to where it's hard to grow anything there now. But in Moses, when they're looking across that Jordan River, which at its widest is about 60 feet, they can see it. What's 60 feet from the edge of this platform? You know, probably to the parking lot. And they can see this land. And they know it's theirs. And it's gorgeous. They're so excited. And Moses is using a little hyperbole. He's so ex pumped. But you have to understand, they've been wandering in a wilderness for 40 years. Oh, man, this is great. This land is green. It's verdant. It's lush. We love it. But for Moses, the land was more than just a geographic place. It was a theologic idea. Seen with spiritual eyes, the land was good, but not just because it was fertile, but because it was the gift of God's blessing to what would be their obedience. Man, God's blessing always comes with obedience. This episode reminds us so often of what we have to do in our own lives. We want to be like these tribes at this point. We want to trust God. He's got a, a mission for us to do. He's got something for us to take on. And we have to ask the Lord, how am I supposed to be obedient in this? Well, let's keep on reading in verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, You've not only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country, 
in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he wouldn't listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of these matters again. Go up to the top of Mount Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. It's a hard phrase. We kind of went over this a couple of weeks ago, where Moses is denied entrance into this land. But it starts off in, a, in that first phrase, and I don't know if you've been in this position in your prayer life, but he says, and I pleaded with the Lord. Pleaded. I begged him. You get the idea. Here's a 120-year-old man leaning on his staff, standing, looking across that water, and he's got all these tribes these second-generation Israelites, and he's knowing they're going to go across, they're going to inherit this land. He wants to see their joy. Oh, Simeon, you ought to see the land that God has prepared for you. Judah, it's so great. Dan, it's there for you. Well, who wouldn't want to be part of that? And Moses says to God, as he says, please, please, oh Lord God, you've just begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Can I not be part of this? And God is frustrated with him. You might even say he's angry with Moses. Oh, he's had enough. Uh, there's another recounting of this in Numbers again. But you remember it was the rock at Meribah where Moses struck the rock with his staff and gave the people water because they demanded it. And it caused... God to be angry with Moses. And for that, Moses is denied entrance into the promised land. Well, we also read in Numbers 20 that it didn't just affect uh, Moses. Moses and Aaron were a team, much like Reuben and Gad. But Moses and Aaron uh, were instructed by the Lord to go up to Mount Hor. And there, uh, they were going to take Aaron's son with them, Eleazar, and at the top of the mountain, they strip Aaron of all of his priestly garments. Because remember, Aaron was the high priest of Israel. He's the one that bore the stones on his chest that were representative of each tribe and went into the Holy of Holies occasionally, especially on Yom Kippur. And he's the one that made atonement. The, the sin was forgiven if everything else had gone correctly and kept that relationship of the covenant between their God and the people of Israel. It was a very... A highly esteemed role in the nation of Israel. Moses didn't do that. Just Aaron did that. But now, because of their sin, and even though it was just Aaron or Moses hitting that rock, Aaron would bear responsibility with Moses. They took those garments off of Aaron. They put it on his son Eleazar, and it was a transfer of authority, which we're going to see in a second for Moses as well. But it was a transfer of authority. Uh, from Aaron to his son to the next generation. And then it says that Aaron was gathered to his fathers. He just basically lays down and he dies. And Moses is there to see that. And so Moses and Eliezer go back down the mountain and God says, enough, right? 
this generation, the first generation, all died in the desert. You've been faithful. However, it's not your destiny to go across that river. He did offer him that consolation prize. He said, you can go up to the top of Mount Pisgah, take a look to the east, west, north, and south, see what's coming, but that's all for this lifetime. You're not going to go further. Have you ever been in a situation where even though you feel like God has forgiven you for your sins, you feel like God is saying, no, you can't go any further. You're not going to be able to do this. It's a hard thing. We'll keep pleading with God. We'll keep pleading with God, and God will say no. I've been so many times in my own life begging God to be healed of something, begging God to give us just that little extra bit of money, you know, because we're really having trouble making ends meet, and he just doesn't seem to come to it, you know. We know he's sovereign. We know he's powerful. We know he loves us. He could do anything that we ask. But in his wisdom, he chooses only to extend his blessings in his way, in his time. And for Moses, neither of those times are now. He's not going to be with his people. There's a point where we have to accept that it's not a matter of us screaming louder. It's not a matter of us praying harder. It's not a matter of having greater faith. Sometimes just God says no. Uh, we see this with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you remember that section, the first six verses, Paul's describing what it was like to be caught up in a vision to heaven. He saw amazing things, things that were so exciting, <clears throat> things that most people never get to see until they pass from this life. But God let Paul see it to encourage him. But then what he writes, starting in verse 7, kind of puts a little bit of leavening to that when it says, so to keep me, Paul, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, three times, that it should leave me. But God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And this is the critical verse as far as you and I are concerned. This should be our attitude. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I was in the hospital for some surgery one time and they had to stick a nose tube without being too gross up your nose. You know, it goes down to your stomach and you can watch all of your gastric juices coming in. Dave, you just said you weren't going to be gross. Well, okay, I crossed the line. But anyway, you can smell that the whole time, right, in your inside, and it's not easy. And I know before the surgery, I said to the anesthetist, now, before you put this in there, I have a deviated septum on this side of the nose. I can't breathe out of this nostril hardly at all. So I said, don't put it on this good side, because then I won't be able to breathe. I'll suffocate. And so I wake up from surgery, and where is he put the tube? on the wrong side, right down. But he said, he came in and told me, I tried, I tried, I couldn't get it in there. It wouldn't fit. And so I sat up and I usually had to stay seated to breathe. But about the second day after I got done being mad and frustrated, I said to the surgeon, I've become one with the tube. <laughs> I've learned to accept it. It's no longer gonna get the better of me. I'm just gonna live with it, right? 
And uh, the surgeon chuckled and laughed about that. But for me, it was a pretty serious deal. I mean, it was kind of frightening because I don't know if you've been in a situation where you can't breathe, but my goodness, it was tough. Paul was saying that, you know, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. When we're weak, the power of Christ comes to rest upon us. It wasn't me making oneness with the tube. It was Christ helping me get through that. People have been through a lot more serious stuff than the story I just told. But when we are going through a tough time and we feel like God is saying no, how easy would it have been for God to say, you know, to these evil spirits, leave Paul, get out of here. How easy would it have been God to say to Moses, you know, Moses, you've served me faithfully for 40 years with these recalcitrant and obstreperous people. You deserve to at least put one sandal in the new land. Go ahead. You know, I, I've been thinking about it, that whole rocket Meribah thing. I, I just lost my temper, you know, just go. No. God says, I've made my mind up. This is the way it's going to be. Sometimes God tells us no. Sometimes that's the answer to our prayer. We don't like it. We keep praying harder and longer. I've met people who said, I've been praying for something for 20-some years. And that's fine. You can do that. But I think if we could hear the Lord, I think he would be saying to us, you know, I've given you grace. I give you grace to deal with this situation. You need to learn from me what it means to not have everything you want, to not be all that you think you should be. My grace is sufficient for you. And so how does Paul end this? For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. If Christ truly lives in us, then we have him with us. And there's nothing that can happen to us that gets God's attention off of us. We live for him. So Moses is pleading for this. God says, no, it's not going to happen. And he said, then to just make it a little tougher than what uh, you have so far, I want you to do this, Moses. I want you to now transfer authority to Joshua. You're like, what? God, you're not even letting me go to the crop. And now I've got to give everything to this young guy. And oh, this may be one of the most difficult things there is in life, to transfer authority to give up a position to somebody who's younger, uh, they're not ready. They'll never be able to do what I do so well. God, are you serious? Yeah. And if we look at this back in Deuteronomy 3, it says uh, in verse 28, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. And not only do I have to give him my position, I've got to encourage him and strengthen. There was no one around to encourage me, God, when you talked to me at that burning bush. No one strengthened me, you know. I can just hear myself saying this. For he shall go over to the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. Wow. So Moses' understanding of everything and all the things he's been through is, one, he doesn't get to cross the promised land. Two, he has to give everything his position. Just like Aaron on Mount Hor gave his priestly garments and his authority to his son Eliezer, Joshua will do the same for Moses. And we know from the book of Joshua, it was a good, good transfer. He was the man to do it. Wow, what a, what a deal. 
Moses was obedient. Not everyone's obedient at this point. I know too many businesses, churches, and so forth that refuse to transfer position and authority to the next generation. I mean, it's, it's, I've never understood it so well as I do now in my 60s, right? You look at that younger generation, you think, you've got to be kidding, Lord. These guys are mutton heads. There's no way that they can do what I do. And the first time they do something differently or they mess up, oh, God, what did I tell you? This is crazy. Are you nuts? You know, no, God says, I'm with them. You messed up too. You just don't remember it or you're choosing not to remember it, right? And Moses has to do this. This is the end of Moses' story as far as his role with the children of Israel. It must have been so hard, as difficult as it was, and as much as you would think he would be looking forward to going home to heaven, I'm sure it was just something that he had not anticipated happening now at this time. We yield to God in obedience. We yield to God in obedience because we want his blessing. The very act of obedience is blessing. What a story. In Deuteronomy, Moses is instructed to help the children of Israel to remember all of these things. That's why he's writing it down. Remembering induces present action. It provides a positive constraint for God's children. If I remember what God has done, wow, then how can I go wrong? I'll live in the light of that and be ready for that. Reflecting on the past will enable the individual Israelites to believe that Yahweh can be counted on to remain true to his character. The same God who demonstrated power in specific events there and then is prepared to do the same here and now. How often do you remind your children of something that God has done in your family's life? Uh, it's not just a verbal thing, right? Moses is writing this down. He's creating a book. Do you journal? Do you keep remembrances of what God has done in your family's life? Do you have physical representation of things? I don't know about you guys, but we have a bunch of magnets in our refrigerator of the different places that I own and I have traveled. And it's fun to go by there sometimes when, and just stare at them. And I, it's not because the little thing that says San Diego is so beautiful. It just, of course, with that, as it does for all of us, it just unleashes a ton of memories of what that trip was like. Oh, yeah, San Diego was cool. It was beautiful. We did this and we did that. Remember when we ate out at this place and all this kind of stuff? Well, when we do that about God, we do the same thing. Are you being creative dads in that you think of ways to help your kids remember what it is that God has done in your lives? Oh, it's powerful. Uh, you can make a calendar in your home and you can circle special days so that next year when it comes around you can say hey do you remember one year ago today this happened john received christ as his savior john tell us what that was like what did that mean to you or betty was baptized oh man that was a great day for our family uh, i remember that i had wrestled with god in prayer on a certain situation and here is how god answered that prayer do you remember in church we were all there together as a family and man, that was so neat the way that God just worked in our family that day. We, we listened to a sermon or there was music or there was a children's program or something. And it just united us. 
as a family. We reached out to the community. I tell stories all the time to my kids. They're adults. But <clears throat> we had our youngest daughter over yesterday. And one of the things I like to do with them is said, you remember your grandma? Which I know they do. My, my mom passed away six, seven years ago. But I like to say, do you remember your grandma? And da, 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 da. she became a believer when she was 50, right? And her life, oh, and they, all they can remember is she always brought gifts and she did this and did that. And it's always a fun thing to do. How do you help your kids remember what God has done in your, in your life and for your family? That's an amazing story time. That's the thing that we should learn from this chapter is obedience is the result of God's blessing. I'm not saying it leads to God's blessing. I don't want you to get that turned around. We're not obedient with the hope that God will bless us. That's not what Moses is saying here. Moses is saying because of God's blessing, you are free to be obedient. There's a difference there, right? Uh, our obedience, our doing away with sin in our life is so important. As the Puritan John Owen once said, we need to be killing sin before it kills you, right? We respond in righteousness to God because of his grace and mercy. We're not doing that to achieve his grace and mercy. Uh, help your kids remember that. Help your kids be uh, in a place where your family talks about this all the time. As we close this morning, we're just going to do a brief look at chapter 4. Um, in the first part there, it says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules. This is verse 1 that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. Keep your eyes, excuse me, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor for the Lord, your God destroyed them from among you, all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who have held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do it, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For so near to it, excuse me, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? What a great statement. God loves his people. Moses is saying, just keep this word. Be in it. Let this be the defining thing of your life. I said at the beginning, this, this Bible, this word is so important to us as a people of God. Um, and it is. But it's also important to you as an individual and to you as a family. This should be what your kids, when they think of you, think this is the word. Think my dad, my mom, they are in the word all the time. In a sense, the beginning of chapter four, I just titled it as a, not an ode to joy, but an ode to the Torah. They were so excited. We see this in Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. Uh, it is just a great deal. So I, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So true. Moses says, if you guys are going to live this life in the new land, make sure you know the word 
of God. So as we close this morning, obedience comes from the blessings of God. It's expected, right? We want to live for Him. We want to make sure that we're remembering Him and that we remember the great deeds He has done for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. So amazing to just be able to walk through it, to see what you did in the lives of these Israelites and the lives of uh, all the people at this time. We thank you for Moses and Aaron being willing, Father, and doing it with dignity to pass on the mantle of authority and position to someone else. We thank you, Father, for the remembrance that you answer our prayers in your ways that your grace is sufficient for us, that in our weakness you are strong. And Father, may we think of special ways to pass on the memories of your glory to those that follow us. Father, that should be our ambition. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.